I'll tell you this morning, the message that God has laid on my heart, I'm not sure if it's going to come out as a blessing or just a plain old mess. I'm not sure how this is going to turn out. I'm going to share some things and there is a lot of it here. So I'm, I need you to put on your thinking caps to stay with me on this because this is just built layer on layer on layer and haven't taught like this in a while in here. So again, I need to just not only engage you emotionally in this, but I hope that we can truly engage you mentally and completely spiritually as I begin to share. I am studying Revelation in a way that I have never studied it before. And I can tell you that it is doing strange things to me. The big thing was that, and you've heard me teach this over the last several years, that every revelation is designed to be at the beginning of a new encounter with God. And if I believe that, that revelation is the beginning of the next encounter, that revelation wasn't simply given to us to tell us about things that were going to happen in the future, but revelation was given to begin an encounter with God right now. There was great purpose in the message for us right now, not to just understand future events. As I've studied, that's what I've looked for. I've asked God to show me those things that are relevant to us right now as believers. Again, I've just been really surprised in studying it that way, what God has shown us. I want us to begin this morning in Revelation chapter 5. This is where I was teaching last Wednesday night. I had intended to get through all of Revelation chapter 5. It's 14 verses long, and I got through three. It is so full, and, and there's so much in it that it just takes a little while. So I'll begin with Revelation 5 verse 1. And I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the backside sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And John says, and I wept much. This is the beginning of the event described completely and very thoroughly in Revelation 5. And we will end with the rest of this in just a few minutes. And I've tried in the study of Revelation on purpose not to worry too much about the symbolism where we typically get hung up, trying to understand in great detail what symbolically is being talked about. John in chapter 4 has entered the throne room and he's described what he has seen and the one who is sitting on the throne. And the beauty and the majesty that is all around it. Because when we begin to read these passages, we understand these words. What a powerful name it is. What a wonderful name it is. What a beautiful name it is. When we read these passages and we get a glimpse into the throne room of God, not someday as it looks right now. And our powerful connection with that throne room because your redemptive plan, the plan that God wrote for us was written in that throne room. God's heart and the decision to give his son as a sacrifice began in that throne room. Everything is connected to those things that have occurred in the throne room of God. But here we get to read about a particular event. He described it beautifully in four. And in five, he now talks about an event that he begins to see unfold. He said, I saw in the, in the throne room, in the right hand of him that sat on the throne. So the first question that we ask, if we have the courage to search through this and understand it, is who is it that is sitting on that throne holding that scroll? 
Well, we don't have to imagine very long. We know it's God the Father. We know that he is sitting there holding that scroll on that throne. It's God himself. Why could he not open the scroll? This is one of these mysteries that we have to search and ask. Why could God the Father not open that scroll? Well, as we begin to understand in a few minutes what's written on it, we will understand, first of all, there was a little bit of criteria to anyone that was going to be able to open that. If someone was going to open it, certain things had to occur. When we know what was written on the scroll, this will make a little more sense. The person who was going to open the scroll had to, in some way, be connected to humanity because it had to be born in free will. Whoever was going to open it had to have the choice, had to be in a place so connected with humanity that it first allowed someone that had to meet that criteria to open the seals. The second criteria, and there's several more, I'm not going to list them all. The second one was this person connected with humanity had to be sinless. There was only two people who ever walked on the face of the earth who were sinless, two men. The first was Adam prior to the fall. The second, we know is named. The only one who meets those two criteria, connected with humanity, born of a woman who had free will, and in that free will remained sinless, we know his name. His name was Jesus. So what was on the scroll? It says it was written on the inside and the outside. He could see it rolled up, but he could see that there was writing on the inside and he could see that there was writing on the outside. This is a question that we get the answer largely in Revelation chapter six. When the seals are broken and we start seeing what was written on them. But I would suggest, and maybe a little more of a general term, that what we can say in the simplest form is that whatever was written there held a plan of redemption. There had to be something written there. It was a plan that was written, full of promises, full of reason, full of understanding, full of payments, all those things that occurred that would have to occur for full redemption to come to mankind. Make a note in your notes to go back and read the entire chapter of Jeremiah chapter 32. You'll read that. You'll understand a great deal about what this scroll held. I'm going to just give you a characterization of Jeremiah 32. In this amazing story, Jeremiah had heard from God. And then when it actually occurred, he knew that it was from God. Jeremiah's relative, I think it was a cousin, came and asked him to buy a field that he owned. And he said in the, in the scripture, it says, for the right of redemption is yours to buy it. It needed to pass within the family. And so he came to Jeremiah and said, it's right for you to redeem this. And he was asking Jeremiah to pay a price and buy this particular field. So Jeremiah buys the field. He weighs out the silver for payment. And it says in the scripture, it says, then he subscribed the evidence. This was done on two scrolls that were both sealed. You can read all this in the scripture. On one scroll, there was a record of the transaction. What was paid? What was done? How was it all done? So on one side of this scroll, there was something written to say, this is what the payment looked like. On the other scroll, there was a plan for redeeming the land, how the land would actually change hands from his relative to him. It does seem a little strange that this property was sold, though. 
Where was Jeremiah at this time? He was in exile. He bought a piece of property that was back in Judah. He bought a piece of property, paid the money for it, but he couldn't take it. It was held by an enemy. It was held by someone else. So in this second scroll, there was a plan for when they got back, how this piece of property would actually come into the hands of Jeremiah because the redemptive plan said something has been lost and this is the means, this is the plan by which that which was lost can be regained. Think about that for just a minute. This was a redemption plan that would restore to someone that which had already been lost. The plan was necessary because they couldn't immediately go and take possession of the land. The seals were necessary because redemption would occur sometime in the future and they had to know that that transaction was not tampered with. And that's what the seals provided. So what was likely on the scrolls? Again, a plan of redemption that would tell of how full redemption would finally come. So when we start reading in Revelation, we'll read a little bit more of this, but when you really get into six and realize as, as the scroll is open and these seals are opened and all this strange stuff that we begin to read begins to occur, what we understand is that God is setting in motion a way to completely redeem us back to him. Now I want to tell you, as much as I, the redemption has come to me and salvation has come to me, and as much has been restored to me, I still have to contend with sin. The full redemption of us in a new heaven and a new earth will be when sin is defeated and we will live eternally in the presence of God and full redemption will come. And what's written on those scrolls is the plan to get us from here to there. A full plan of redemption. So what had been lost that needed to be redeemed that would require such a plan that would restore us to all of this fullness. Genesis chapter three, verse eight. What was lost? We read it right here. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord, from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. We can read and we can understand that it was God's intention that he and man would walk together. What was lost? And what does God desperately want to restore? What does he want from us? What does he want from you? He wants to walk with you. We saw it in the garden, in the perfection of what God created, that he had an intimate relationship he, where man could live in the presence of God and, the, and God could live in the presence of man. That's what we see in the garden. That's what we, we recognize, that God had a desire and he wants it restored. He wants you and I today to be able to walk with him. I want us to notice something else. I want us to recognize that at that time, I think that all things in heaven and all things in earth were together. I don't believe there was any separation, any space between the place that God held and the place that man dwelt. I don't believe they could have walked in the garden together had those two things not been together. And I want to teach Wednesday night on how I think this separation has occurred. We know this to be true, though, that God somehow was walking in the presence of man and man in the presence of God, because this is what he said. They were hiding themselves from the presence of God. So we know that he was there with them. 
I want us to go to Ephesians chapter one and look at a little, uh, just a short passage. It's fascinating to me. This is Ephesians one verse 10. That in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven or which are on earth, even in him. I believe the day when Jesus comes to fight in the battle of Armageddon, I believe he will bring heaven with him. And I believe in that day that Satan is dealt with, that day that he is defeated, that all things in heaven and all things in earth will be together again, according to this scripture. That that is always God's plan, because what does he want? Why did he send the Holy Spirit now? Why did he send the reality of heaven to us now? Because his great desire is to walk with men and women. He wants the intimacy. He wants the relationship. The next question from Revelation 5. Who is the angel that is calling for someone to open these seals? Who is someone that is crying out saying, who can do it? Who can step up to this place? Take that scroll from the right hand of God the Father who has held it there for so long. Who can take it and open it and finally release this plan of redemption so that all in the fullness of God can be restored? So who is this angel flanking the throne of God. This is pretty fascinating to me. And I will tell you that this is Randy. I'll give you miles and miles and miles to disagree with this. But there was just too powerful a connection for me from this. Because if you go to Genesis 3, I want to read another passage back there. After Adam and Eve had done what they had done, as they ate from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we read this in Genesis 3, beginning with verse 22. And the Lord God said, behold, the man is become as one of us to know good and evil. And now lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God has sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed at the east of the garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword, which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. Who was guarding the place where the walk with God had been lost? What had Adam done when he ate of the fruit? What was lost in that moment that needed to be restored? Man's walk with God. That's what Adam lost. So there's a cherubim there. You look that up and it is a plural word, but it says that an angel that flanks the throne of God. I would know with some speculation, but who do you think would be the most likely angel that would cry for redemption for that which was lost other than the one who was standing guard over that which was lost? Who would want it more? Again, this is speculation on my part, but I will tell you that the angel standing guard, I can imagine that angel saying, who will come? Who will unlock this place so that man can once again walk with God? I've been puzzled by this verse for a long time, this question about what was there in Eden that God would say, I can't let man back in there. What was there? Because it doesn't make sense to me until I, uh, studying it again, studying the book of Revelation, and I, and I read across this again, and there it is. God says it very plainly. He says, this is why I can't let them back in. Let me back up to 22. Behold, the man has become as one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put forth his hand 
and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. What would a man's condition have been if he had eaten from the tree of life now? What would have happened? He would have lived eternally under the weight of sin. You get that? This was the greatest act of kindness that God could have ever offered to Adam and Eve was to separate them from the tree of life because if they had eaten the tree of, from the tree of life in their sinful condition that they were then, they would have remained that way forever. It was described in one of the books that I was looking at as if somebody lived in a swamp in the nastiness of a swamp, knowing that there were alligators there, knowing that there were snakes there and living there in that kind of a nasty place for eternity. And God says, I cannot bring eternal life to someone until this sin debt is paid. He separated them from the garden, from the tree of life, because he loved them. And he knew that if they ate from the tree of life in their sinful condition, that they would have remained in that sinful condition for the entirety of eternity. And he wouldn't let them do it. This was an act of kindness on the heart of God. He just couldn't allow them to remain in that sinful condition. And I want to tell you, he feels the same way about you and I. He cannot bring to us eternal life until sin is dealt with in our lives. Until we come to that understanding of what sin does and the death that it brings to us and the price that he paid for us, we cannot come to eternal life. He won't give that gift to us. We think it's kind of automatic in the reality of salvation. No, it is a gift given when sin is dealt with so that we can live in a sinless condition for eternity, not a sinful one. I want to tell you there's a big story here in all that God did. A plan of redemption must be provided and it would have to be a plan that would provide a means to remove the consequence of sin and a method of payment for death. It would be a plan of redemption that would allow man to walk with God again, now and always. I'll tell you this morning, God's missing us. I understand lost men hiding from God, but I want to tell you this, the worst commentary, the saddest commentary is the reality that most believers hide from God as well. I want us to go back to Ephesians chapter one, because I want us to read this plan of salvation. I want us to read what, what this redeeming reality of what, when John looked into the throne room and saw this event, he begins to describe Jesus and things that happened in the past. He begins to look back in the things that happened in the past that Jesus had already done as part of this redemptive plan before he unfolds these seven seals. Ephesians 1, I'll begin reading with verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him for the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him, in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, wherein he hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he hath purposed in himself, 
that in the dispensation of the fullness of time, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him, in whom also we have, been, we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worked all things after the counsel of his own will, that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ, in whom you also trusted after that you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that you believed, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. You hear the word redemption, that last verse, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. What was written on the scrolls for Jeremiah? A plan of redemption of a purchased possession that he couldn't take yet. But when Jesus came, he could take possession. He wants us. He wants you. He didn't die so that you could come to church. He didn't die so that you could be religious. He died so that we could have a relationship with him. Lord, we come to this moment recognizing what an amazing plan this is. What an amazing story this is. What Adam lost, the walk with you, the fellowship with you, the intimacy with you, the ability for us to live in the presence of God, lost. And from that point forward in the Old Testament, you came upon men, but you didn't dwell among them. You came and you spoke and you, you brought guidance. But the intimacy, that which we have because you have come now to indwell us, that we can become sons of God, children of God, daughters of God, that you have that plan for us, that we could walk in that relationship restored because of a choice that you made to die on the cross, to give yourself as a sacrifice for us. And I pray, Lord God, that, that not a single person in here would be unmoved by that truth, that no one would be able to sit here calmly under that reality of what you did, the plan of redemption, to take back and possess something that was lost so that we could once again walk with you. You paid such a high price for the intimacy that we have so that we could walk together once again. Lord, let us cherish the reality. Let us cherish that you have come with such intimacy to indwell our lives so that we can walk in kindness toward one another, so that we can, we can walk and minister to one another in love and grace and mercy. We just read it. That's what you did for us. That's what you gave us. And that's what you expect back from us, that we would be people of grace, extending that to one another. People who receive the love of God and by that receiving, share it. And let it pour over out of us so that the world is loved with your love and not ours. Feel your grace and not ours. Understand your forgiveness and not that which we can offer. Lord, you put a great plan to redeem us so that we could walk with you. Let us walk in the fullness of it. Such a great act of love when you wouldn't let Adam and Eve back in the garden. Because you wouldn't leave them eternally in their sinful state. Because they now knew the difference. Thank you, Lord, for your kindness and your love and your mercy to protect them and for your great plan of redemption to restore us so that we could walk with you so that someday in a new heaven and a new earth, 
with full redemption brought back into place, we can walk with you without even imagining sin. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. In Jesus' name. I'm going to go back to Revelation 5 and end here. Verse 5, where I ended a while ago. And one of the elders said unto me, Weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. And he came and he took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and the four and twenty elders fell down before the lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of saints. And they sung a new song saying, thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to glory by the blood of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. And has made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. And I beheld and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and the beasts and the elders. And the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. Saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea, and all that are in them, heard I saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sits upon the throne, and unto the Lamb forever and ever. And the four beasts said, Amen. And the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him that live forever and ever. Hear the cries of the shackled from the onset of time. For the chains of defeat, there's no key. See the tears of the broken, the cries of the slaves. Is there no one? Set us free. Then the crying is stilled as the chorus rings out. The shackled released from their chains and Whoa.
anxious for the day. But while we're here, let every moment matter. Let every life you bring into our path, let that be the life that is the most important in that moment. We look forward to the day for all to be restored. But we thank you, Lord, for the redemptive plan that we live under today, the fullness of all that you've already given, that we can share in abundance with one another. And we pray and we thank you, Lord. Worthy is the Lamb, worthy to receive power, worthy to receive glory and honor. In all that we do and all that we say, we pray, Lord, that we would honor you and praise you and thank you for the very life that you've given us. For without you, there is no life, there is no truth, there is no redemption. But in you, it's all possible. Thank you, Lord. Let us soak and sing your praises today. In Jesus' name, amen.